Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Questioning Jesus. This series provides honest answers to some of the most important questions people ask regarding the truth of Jesus and Christianity. This morning we're going to be continuing our series on Questioning Jesus, and we are looking at the third in our series of uh, six questions, which is the question of evil. And our text today is going to be Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Uh, All the verses and everything I'll be talking about will be up here on the screen. I'm going to be using the New International Version this morning. And we'll talk uh, through this text and try to grapple with this question of evil. So hear now the words of the sovereign and good God. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the evening of April the 4th, 1968, a man walked out on his balcony at 6 p.m. in Memphis, Tennessee. And a moment later, at 6.01, a shot rang out. And Martin Luther King, Jr. fell over dead. It was obviously national and international news, but it was an act of unspeakable evil. Here was a man who had actually requested that uh, at his own funeral they played a a recent sermon of his because he said i'm not interested in people talking about the fact that i won the nobel peace prize or any other accolades i've had i want to be known as somebody who labored and suffered in behalf of other people a man who had given himself over to doing good to working against racism and injustice and his life ends with a crazed man shooting him, killing him. How do we explain that? How do you explain a moral evil like shooting someone who is devoting their life to helping others? Last week, I went to a funeral for a friend. Unlike Martin Luther King Jr., her death was not noticed with international acclaim. Uh, People did not uh, pay attention to it and look at at, at what had happened. But my friend Sue, who was a great, strong believer, who had devoted her life to serving other people, who had actually taught several of our children who Linda had worked with for years, her life had come to an end after a struggle with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which horribly had racked her body over the last 18 months or two years of her life to where one by one every skill she had had was gone to where at the end she could no longer communicate. She could do virtually nothing. So, uh, and, and in fact, you know, her uh, call had been to, to, to love Jesus and to love others. And yet, how does one answer and say, where does this seemingly senseless pain and suffering and early death come from? Even if we think we can answer how an act of evil like killing Martin Luther King Jr. can be done and say, well, somebody did that, nobody injected ALS into Sue's body. How do you answer that? Sometimes theologians speak of 
moral evil and then natural evil, what I'm going to refer to today as evil and suffering. And this is perhaps the most difficult question of all. Some of the questions that people think are, oh, this is why I don't believe in the Christian faith, they're actually not that difficult. If you sit down and you work through them, it's pretty obvious where the answer falls. But this question is really difficult. If God is sovereign and good, how do we explain evil and suffering? And people have been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, A man named Richard Swinburne, who wrote an article in the Oxford Companion to Philosophy, said this, the problem of evil is the most powerful objection to traditional theism. When you're arguing as a philosopher about whether God exists, he says, this is the most difficult question. How do you explain evil? And C.S. Lewis, in his more popular form of philosophy, in mere Christianity, put it simply this way. If a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? We say God's good. When we look around, we see all these problems. How is that uh, true? Now, this question has plagued the greatest thinkers in the world for millennia. It was wrestled with by Greek philosophers. In the tradition, it was wrestled with by brilliant men like Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, and right down to our present time with a man like C.S. Lewis or some of our current philosophers. And they have written, in fact, entire volumes. And I've got less than 45 minutes. But fortunately for you, what they have pondered, I am going to answer in full in the next 45 minutes. Uh, Obviously, that can't happen. We could have an entire long series on this. But that does not mean that we can't at least make an attempt and start to lay some things out that help us grapple with this. And I also want to say another reason this problem is very, very difficult for us is it's intensely personal. If you're in the midst of suffering, you're not looking for a philosophical answer. Okay? You, you, you are crying out because there is pain, there is suffering, there is evil. And that's true whether you're... you're Martin Luther King Jr.'s friends who are there and you're cradling him in your arms, you're not looking for a philosophical answer. And it was true last week when we were sitting at a funeral for our friend. We weren't looking for a philosophical answer. So it's very difficult question for all of these reasons. So let's dive in to talk about this question of evil. And as we're doing each week, I'm going to begin with a brief summary of what Christians believe, what we believe, Then we're going to come back and try and answer the objections and say why we believe these things are true. So what do we believe about evil and suffering? Well, here's the basic facts that have come across, and pretty much all Christians agree on these and have agreed on them down through the ages. The first point is that evil and suffering are pervasive. What I mean is they're seen at all times and all places. No part of creation is immune. In fact, the Christian message would actually be evil and suffering are far worse than many unbelievers have even recognized. Some people have tried to to shield themselves from this, but the, the Christian scriptures are clear. There is evil, there is suffering, and in fact, the bad news is there's evil that we haven't even recognized yet, but it is truly evil. And in fact, uh, suffering can go even beyond the grave which is another part of it. So evil and suffering are real. Christianity does not hide from it. Second point, which is actually that evil and suffering are real. They're not just a state of mind. Some people have tried to wrestle through this, and for example, uh, Mary Baker Eddy and, and Christian Science said, well, that's all just a figment of your imagination. Evil and suffering aren't real. Christianity says that's foolishness. Evil and suffering are very real. Uh, They are as real as anything else around us, and so we're not going to escape from this question by saying they're not there. Number three, Christianity teaches that evil and suffering are the results of human sin. When you look around and you see these things, this is not the way the world was made. It was not created to be like this, and in fact, it's not the way it's going to be in the end. So they're, they're the results of human sin. The world wasn't created evil. It was created 
good. The world was not created in suffering, it was created in blessing. But something went drastically wrong. And that wrong was brought about by human sin. Fourth, the Scripture teaches that God is both sovereign and good. To be blunt, some Christians try and get out of this by either, the most popular way for Christians is to reduce God's sovereignty. Well, God wants to do something, but our free will is in the way and there's no way for God. But you can't cut the Gordian knot by saying that. The Scripture is clear. God is sovereign. The Scripture is also very clear that God is good. He does not do evil. He does not tempt us to do evil. He is beyond even countenancing or looking at evil. And in fact, every evil will be judged. And so the Scripture is clear that God is both sovereign and good, and we, we can't escape this by reducing one or the other of those. We have to live with Him being all sovereign and all good, all holy. Fifth, the Scriptures then teach us that God will overcome evil and suffering through Christ and His work on the cross. What Jesus was doing there on the cross, it does include your, the possibility for your salvation and mine. That is true, but it's much more than that. It is God's answer to evil and suffering in the cosmic realm. That through Christ, God is going to resolve the problem of evil and suffering. And then that leads to the final point, which is sixth. God will redeem and restore all of the sufferings of those who love him. Every bit of evil and suffering you undergo in this life, if you love God and are called according to his purpose, he not only will end that for you, but he is going to turn that to reward and blessing for you. What is evil, God will use for good. To quote Joseph in the Old Testament, God will work good in all things. For those who love him are called according to his purpose, as Paul summarizes it in Romans 8, 28. And we will come back to that. So, if we want to summarize what Christians say regarding evil and suffering, here is how I would put it. The evil and suffering seen throughout the creation are the real consequences of human sin. But our good, sovereign God will overcome them through Christ to bring eternal blessing and joy to all who love him. That's a summary of what the Scripture would teach. Now, why do we believe that? That's what we believe, but the question comes back, well, how do you maintain these things are true? How can all of this be true? That is the question of evil. So I'm going to pose a number of questions that might be asked here. We will not get to all of them, but a number of the most central questions and how our text today answers those questions and why Christians believe this. So the first question is put this way. Look, there's evil everywhere, and if there is a God, he is responsible for suffering. He must not be good. If there's a God, he's not a good God, because there's all of this suffering around us. Now, what the, the Scripture does is it recognizes that there is evil and suffering throughout creation. Notice in Romans 8, 20-22, Paul refers to this several different ways, in verse 21, he speaks of bondage to decay. In verse 22, he speaks of the whole creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth. So the scripture tells us, yes, there is suffering and evil in this world. There is a decay that is happening. Things are rotting and falling apart, so to speak. And there is a groaning in the creation because there is a pain. It is, it is not supposed to be this way. And it speaks of it as being throughout all creation. But what Paul is doing here is he's making an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3. Paul's very language, the way he describes this, is an allusion back. And he's saying, don't you recognize where this came from? And we're told where it came from in Genesis chapter 3. If you go back uh, in Genesis 3, we have the story where the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. And after they have sinned, God comes and he begins to make pronouncements upon them. And we read in Genesis 3, 16 to 19, that to the woman, Eve, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. 
With pain you will give birth to children. So notice there in Romans 8, Paul said, the whole creation's groaning like in childbirth. Because that was the curse that was pronounced in Genesis chapter 3. And what came upon humanity, in fact, spread to everyone else. So God spoke and said to the woman, you're going to have labor and pain and childbearing, which is part of my good intention and plan and call for you, but now it's going to have pain and suffering with it. Furthermore, in verse 17, notice God speaks to Adam. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. It's not just that you're cursed. Even the ground, creation, is cursed. In verse 18, we're told it will produce thorns and thistles for you. See, this is the frustration of creation. Previously, creation was meant to be productive, and it was. Everything was growing. Everything was working. Now God says, Adam, here's the way it's going to be. You're going to work. You're going to labor. And at the end of all that labor, guess what you get? thorns and thistles and all the stuff you don't want that is what if you've ever tried to grow a garden again i've mentioned this before you know that's what's true what you don't want is what seems to grow naturally what you want takes a lot of labor and effort and paul is alluding to that and saying the whole creation's experiencing frustration things are not the way it's supposed to be and he goes on then and finally in verse 19 it says for dust you are and to dust you will return there is now death this is what paul refers to as bondage to decay there in romans 8 so paul's language is a clear allusion back to genesis uh genesis chapter 3 and he's saying pain and childbirth futility death and decay the entire range of human suffering is because of the fall paul says whatever it is the suffering you're experiencing in this life the evil you see around you and then ultimately the death and decay that befall all of us Paul says, here's where it goes back to. It goes back to the fall. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. So moral evil in the universe is clearly a human responsibility. We have unleashed this upon ourselves. And so when we see an evil act, like in 1968 when, when Dr. King is gunned down, obviously a human being did that. And Paul says, and you trace that back to the fall. But the question then comes out, well then, if that's the case, then God must be limited in his power, or else he would have stopped this. He wouldn't have let this happen in the first place. But actually, the scripture gives us a clue as to what's going on there as well. I'll look back in Genesis 3, where Paul is alluding. But before God pronounces the curse upon Adam, he says this. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I had commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. So here's where the curse is flowing from. I gave you a command and you had a choice because you have free will. When I gave you the command, what I'm telling you now is obviously you had the ability to obey or disobey. Unlike animals, unlike plants, everything else I have commanded and what I say is done. And up until this point, I spoke and you came into existence. But then, I, because I'd made you in my image, I gave you a command and suddenly you were confronted with the choice. And Adam, you chose that which was evil and all, that, uh, all the evil in the world is unleashed because of it. So, what the text is telling us is God has made humans with free will, the ability to obey or disobey the commands of God. And Adam chose to disobey, and I might point out how many of us have followed suit. See, it's not just the biblical message is that Adam's fall did affect you and me, but that's not the only thing in the biblical message. The other part of the message is we have all chosen to disobey God as well. Every last one of us has made that same choice. And as a result, it leads to curse of evil and suffering. But see, the point in this is, the reason we have free will is it is an inherent in being in the image of God. You cannot be the image of God and not have free will. Because God himself is a being who is free. And so when he makes us in his image, we inherently have free will. And let me say this is true in the whole Christian tradition. There are some who think, well, 
if you follow like Augustine and Calvin, then you don't believe in free will. That, that's not true. Okay, I, I speak as someone who does agree with Augustine and Calvin. Everyone agrees there is free will. That's not what the argument is there. We all have free will because it's inherent in being the image of God. Now, the question comes, well, then why did God do that? Why is God making creatures in his own image? Because we have to recognize when God makes creatures in his image, there is the inescapable possibility of sin and evil and suffering. C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Problem of Pain, where he is wrestling with this question of of evil, uh, Lewis said this, all that is given to a creature with free will must be two-edged, not by the nature of the giver or of the gift, but by the nature of the recipient. You understand what Lewis is saying? If you give a gift to someone who has free will, no matter who you are and what your intentions are, and no matter what the gift is that you're giving them, they can choose to use it for good or evil. Not because of you, not because of the gift, but because they have a will on their own to exercise it. So what you as a, as a good being might give to them and give them a good gift, they can turn and use that even to evil. That is inherent in free will. Now, one might then say, well, geez, if that's the case, wouldn't it have been better if we weren't made in the image of God and we didn't have free will? The problem with that is free will is not only what opens the possibility of evil and suffering, it's also what opens the possibility of love, blessing, and joy that can be experienced in its ultimate only as the image of God. Again, I'll quote Lewis, this time from Mere Christianity. He puts it this way. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. Okay? You and I experience joy and blessing and and a knowledge of God in a way that even the angels can't because we are the image of God. But again, if you're going to make somebody the image of God, then they have free will. And if, as the image of God, they take that free will and turn it to evil, you end up with all the evil and suffering we see in the universe. Now, some would then come back, and this is one of the difficulties, and say, well, then what that means is God will not be able to overcome evil and sin. So if God is good, and he gave us all this, and it was a good gift, and okay, we'll we'll grant you that, but then what that means is, well, then we've got free will, and there is no way God will ever be able to fix this mess. But the scripture is clear that that is not the case. Notice in verses 19 to 21 in our text, Paul says this. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Remember, he's building on this analogy of the the labor pains. He's saying, yes, there's labor, but of course, when a woman goes into labor, what's her eager expectation? birth is coming right there's a baby that's coming out of this and paul says the whole creation's in in pain and suffering like labor but it's because there's uh an eager expectation that the sons of god are going to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of god paul says creation is suffering creation knows things are not the way they ought to be but creation like somebody being in labor like a woman in labor is looking forward to liberation day the whole creation paul says is an eager expectation he's using a a literary device known as personification he's saying look all of creation even what we think of as being non-sentient there's something built into its dna so to speak that it knows in its guts that things aren't right they're not the way they're supposed to be but it also knows that god is one day going to resolve that and so the whole creation is waiting for it and this is a promise that god is going to judge all sin and evil 
he is going to reverse the effects of the fall. And as the hymn we sometimes sing says, he's going to spread blessing far as the curse is found. That's Isaac Watchman with Joy to the World. Far as the curse is found, God is going to spread blessing. As sin and evil is spread throughout the universe, God is going to overcome it. He is going to judge it. And he is going to spread blessing to every realm throughout the creation. So the scripture is clear. God has allowed the effects of our sin and the curse to run its course. But we cannot take the next step and say, well, therefore, he somehow lost his sovereignty in this. When he made us in his image, that meant he's no longer in control. That's not true. God is still in control. He can choose his time. In other words, to be blunt, some Christians act as if, and we do, well, God is sovereign right up until he runs into my free will. And God would not overcome my free will. Well, try and explain that to somebody like Jonah. God can, whenever he wants, do that. Now, if he had done that back in Genesis 3, the Bible would have been the shortest holy book in the world. That would have been it. He made us. We had free will. We chose poorly. He destroyed us. End of story. Holy Trinity continues in blessing and joy and love for the rest of eternity. God did not do that. He chose to redeem us. But make no mistake, in that choice, it does not mean he has ceded sovereignty and therefore he is not one day going to judge sin and rectify this. He is still in sovereign control and he has promised that one day he will judge and eradicate sin. And in fact, the death and resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that God's going to judge and overcome all sin. I won't take the time to turn there now, but if you read in Romans 3, 21 to 26, probably the the uh, shortest purest distillation of the teaching of scripture and the gospel and what god was doing in christ is there in romans 3 21 to 26 and paul says make no mistake this is proof that god is going to judge all sin god has overlooked sin god has allowed sin to continue but in the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ god has set his stamp down once and for all saying i am going to do what i've said i'm going to do all sin will be judged it will all be eradicated. Now, a response that can come back to this is, well, look, I simply don't believe in God or the Christian explanation regarding evil. Okay, you, you answer all these questions and you do this, but I don't believe God exists. I don't believe in what you're saying, and I think I'm better off. The problem is, there is actually nothing worse in the question of evil than giving that answer. One who says that has actually put themselves in a far worse place to deal with the problem of evil and suffering. And here is why. If there is no God, and this is simply a material universe, then concepts such as good and evil are meaningless. All behaviors are equally valid. So, when that man sat there and looked through that scope and shot Dr. King, he could have shot him or not. And it makes no difference. And whether my friend contracted ALS and suffered and died or lived another 20 years, it's neutral. It makes no difference. And can I tell you, even those who say they live that way, don't live that way. Nobody lives that way. Because we cannot live that way. This is why uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, said this, Without God, all things are permitted. If there is no God, there is no good and evil. And you can try and play games and do mental stuff which we sometimes like. See, we like to state that. Our, our second son, Jeremy, I've never forgotten this. He was uh, over at the community college one day, and he came home, and he was all in a huff. And he said, Dad, I've decided I'm going to become a philosophy major. I said, okay, uh, why? What brought that on? He said, because I was in an intro philosophy course over at the community college this afternoon, and all these crazy people were reading Nietzsche and existentialism, and all the people are sitting in class, and they're saying, that's true. There is no such thing as good and evil. 
which is very popular with you if you're like, you know, a 19-year-old who wants to believe I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, however I want, and nobody can tell me it's right or wrong. Jeremy, however, had then turned around and challenged the class. He said, really, there's no good or evil. Because just a week or two ago, you all were decrying the fact that a guy down at Virginia Tech pulled a gun out and shot a whole bunch of students. And I was in high school when they flew planes into the Twin Towers. And everybody sure thought that was evil. But you can't have it both ways. There's either good and evil, or there's not. And if there is not a God, there is no such thing as good and evil. In a material universe, if that's all we have, we are caught in natural selection, Darwin's nightmare. And what we decry as evil is simply the strong overcoming the weak. So you can't speak of good and evil or complain about the problem of evil. There is no problem of evil. If I'm bigger than you, then I just simply exert my bigness over your smallness and stop whining about it. You should have evolved bigger and stronger. But again, you don't actually live that way. Uh, one of my seminary professors, T.M. Moore, had a young guy that was explaining this to him and saying that, and T.M. was big. He's even bigger than I am. And he said this small guy was making this argument, so T.M. reached out and grabbed this really expensive pen out of the guy's pocket and took it and put it in his own pocket. Had the conversation, he started to leave, and the guy said, can I have my pen back? And T.M. said, no, because I'm bigger than you. And there is no good and evil, so I didn't actually steal. I just took what met my fancy. And the guy just kind of sat there and looked at him, and TM handed the pen back and said, it's kind of a hard philosophy to live with, isn't it, in the real world? Now, lest you think, you know, Dostoevsky was a believer, so maybe he's just over-arguing the case. But actually what's really interesting is Jean-Paul Sartre, who is one of the founders of existentialism, admitted this is all true. People tried to avoid this because, after all, it ended with the Nazis, that's where it leads. But Sartre said, yes, it's true. So here, here's a lengthy quote from him, and this is in his book, Existentialism as a Humanism. So he is writing as a person who believes there is no God. We live alone in the world, and there really is no good and evil. And here's his explanation. If God does not exist, then there can no longer be any possibility of an a priori good existing, since there is no perfect and infinite consciousness to think it. It is nowhere written that, quote, the good exists, end quote, and that one must be honest and not lie, since we are precise now on the plane where there are only human beings. Dostoevsky once wrote, if God does not exist, everything is permitted, and for that, existentialism is the starting point. We have neither behind us nor before us a luminous realm of values nor any means of justification or excuse. Now, I will give Sartre an A-plus for admitting this is where his philosophy leads. Where I won't give him an A-plus is then, again, when you recognize we all don't like where that actually goes. Nietzsche wrote it seeing where it would go, but it was not actually there. Sartre's writing in the wake of Nazism, the triumph of the will to power. So, Actually, if you want to say, I don't like the Christian answer to good and evil, you can say that. But what you can't do is say that and find yourself in not a far worse position. One that's in fact untenable. And so what happens is people who state that, they actually borrow Christian capital to live their lives while they're arguing against the very thing that they're building on. It's like sawing off the limb that you're sitting on. But it happens all the time, friends. People do that. So that's what's being stated. And so I would say, listen, beyond all doubt, the question of evil and suffering is difficult for Christians. There's things we simply cannot explain. I, I can't explain why my good friend got ALS. I can't explain why God didn't just blow that bullet aside. Let Dr. King live on. I don't know. But I want to say for the atheist, the question's not difficult. It's impossible. And it's devoid of all hope. So what does this mean for us? How do we apply this? And I want to now turn and look. 
I've been being a bit philosophical. But if you're sitting here suffering, or someone's doing evil, and you're receiving the bad fruits of that, you'd like something more than that, and I want us to think through that. So I've got three brief questions, and we'll come to the Lord's table. Number one, do I have hope in the face of evil and suffering? Because this isn't just about filling in a philosophical quiz. What do I do when evil and suffering come to me? Because apart from the good sovereign God, there is no hope in the face of evil and suffering. Life is full of it, then you die, end of story. Friends, if that's true, then let's eat and drink and get all we can now. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us. But see, God does not let evil have the last word. He gives us hope in a world that a world without evil and suffering is coming. Notice in our text again in Romans 8, 24 and 25, Paul says this. I can, or starting actually in verse 18, he began the paragraph this way, and then at the end I'll show you kind of the bookends. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And I remind you, this is not a guy who lived a life apart from suffering. This is a man who was stoned who was beaten with rods, who five times got the 40 lashes minus one, who spent many years languishing in a jail, who was persecuted and chased and just, and at the end of his life was martyred. That guy says, stack all that up. It's not even worth mentioning next to what's coming. Okay, see, it's there. And if it wasn't for what's coming, this would be bleak beyond description. But because of what's coming, the light is so bright, everything else fades. And so Paul then goes on in verse 24 and 25 says, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So friend, evil and suffering are real, and they are great in this life. But a new world is coming. And that new world is going to be glorious beyond compare or description. And that is what sustains you and me in the face of suffering. We don't get out of suffering by closing our eyes and saying, it's not there, it's not there, it's not there. We don't get out of suffering by just, somehow if I can get this thing, my, the evil and suffering will stop. You can't hide from it. But what we can do is we can be sustained by knowing a new world is coming. A world in which God is going to wipe away every tear. A world in which evil and suffering are banished so do i have that hope secondly for a believer i want you to understand this not only do i have that hope but do i know that god will work all things for my good the text we're looking at i have to pick a place to stop it but if you remember paul goes on right from there and he says look in the middle of all this the holy spirit is interceding for us with groans even when you don't know how to pray in the midst of your suffering the holy spirit is going to be praying and then he comes to verse 28 and he says this and we know we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose there is evil and suffering and do not buy the theology that tells you if you're a christian it no longer touches you it's not true it's not true. But here is what is true. Even if your brothers sell you into slavery, and even if your slave owner's wife lies about you, and you are thrown into a dungeon, and even if everybody has forgotten about you, God is not. And even if your brothers have done this for evil, and they meant it for evil and harm, with Joseph, friends, you can say what you meant for evil and harm, God meant for good. And God was always working good. I have never been outside the grasp of my good sovereign Father. And everything that has gone on, He's been working to my good. He's been laboring. He has been working through it all. And this knowledge is what has to sustain me when evil and suffering comes my way. I'm going to read another lengthy quote. This one won't be written up. You can look it up on the website. But this is from Charles Spurgeon who's sometimes called the Prince of English Preachers, but Spurgeon suffered massively both with depression, today I'm sure he would be diagnosed with something, and he had all kinds of terrible physical maladies. So he's not an armchair guy. But here's what Spurgeon said. Dear reader, 
Are you looking forward to poverty? Fear not. The divine spirit can give you in your want a greater plenty than the rich have in their abundance. You know not what joys may be stored up for you in the cottage around which grace will plant the roses of content. Are you conscious of a growing failure in your bodily powers? Do you expect to expect to suffer long nights of languishing and days of pain? Oh, be not sad. That bed may become a throne to you. You little know what every pang that shoots through your body may be a refining fire to consume your dross, a beam of glory to light up the secret parts of your soul. Are the eyes growing dim? Jesus will be your light. Do the ears fail you? Jesus' name will be the soul's best music and his person your dear delight. Socrates used to say, philosophers can be happy without music. And Christians can be happier than philosophers when all outward causes of rejoicing are withdrawn. In thee, my God, my heart shall triumph. Come what may of ills without. By thy power, O blessed Spirit, my heart shall be exceeding glad, though all things shall fail me here below. You hear what Spurgeon's saying? It doesn't matter whatever else is going on. God's always at work. Do you and I understand? Uh, We don't. We don't understand when those things happen. But we can know this. God is working it for my good. Now and in eternity. Every bit of it, and that can sustain us. Last point, and we'll come to the table. This leads us to the table. Not only is God doing that, do you know that God is not doing that like he pressed a distant button to make it happen? God is with you and me in our suffering. He is not distant in our suffering. He is with us. Friends, Christ has borne our evil and suffering, and he has conquered for us. He was forsaken that you might never be forsaken. He bore the curse that you might bear the blessing. He suffered alone so that you would always know in your suffering you do it in the presence of God. This is the sure anchor for our soul when we're facing all of our suffering. Uh, Michael Green in a commentary on Matthew, said this, In Jesus, God has come to share our pain. God is no absent academic who writes a book on the problem of pain. He has got involved. He has allowed pain at its most severe to strike him. We worship a suffering God. That is the best answer to the problem of undeserved suffering. Friends, when you suffer, Christ is born it on the cross. When you feel alone and forsaken, Christ was alone and forsaken. When you you feel abandoned, he has uttered that cry in your behalf so that you might never actually be abandoned. Friends, I know when we are in the midst of evil and suffering, we can feel abandoned and alone. You can. And, and, and we sometimes think, you know, if I, just, if I just memorize this verse, if I just do this, I'll just scoot through. No, you don't. Because, see, here's one of the problems. I had, I had a professor at seminary, and we started a class on apologetics, which is what this series is. And when we talked about evil and suffering, he said, if you're ever in a room and they explain evil and suffering, you say, that's it. You should get up and run out. Because there is no answer to it. It's, it's outrageous. It shouldn't be this way. And when you're experiencing it, the only thing that can hold us is knowing Christ has drank that cup of suffering in your place, and he drank it to the dregs. And he took it into the tomb, and he dragged it down to the powers of hell, and then he burst forth free. And he has done that in your place and mine. So this isn't a philosophical thing. This is about what God has done for us, and he walks with us through it. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I can think of no better way to answer this question, because here we remember Christ's suffering for us. 
We remember that he was broken, that we might be healed. We remember that the cup of wrath was poured out upon him, that we might freely drink the cup of blessing. And so we're going to come to the table, and I want to encourage you to come and do this. And to remember at this table, see, this is the mystery. You know, the Christian faith is full of mysteries. We don't, we don't have a faith that, that everything is just locked up. Okay? Here's a mystery. We're going to take some bread. We're going to take some juice. And God himself is going to meet us in this. His presence is going to be renewed to us in this. So if you are here this morning and you, you've been suffering, you are struggling, whether in body or soul, I want to urge you, reach out to God this morning. Let the promise come fresh to you. For our visitors, you do not have to be a member of our church to participate in this meal. You do need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you understand that we have have made shipwreck of our own soul. We have willingly joined in the rebellion of Adam. We have turned against God, and God in his mercy offers to forgive us because of Christ. There is nothing we can do to earn his favor. It is freely given. If you believe that, brothers and sisters, let's meet God at his table. If you don't, talk to me afterwards, and we, we, we can talk more about this. Uh, but this meal is a profession that we believe that very thing. And I want to remind again, something new we're doing here, that if you are on a gluten-free diet, we will have gluten-free bread uh, at the back for you to be able to participate with. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for this bread and this cup that is a reminder of your unending presence with us. I pray this morning as we come to your table that, Lord, you would graciously meet your people to remind them of your never-failing love and presence. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we give the elements out, please hold on to them. I encourage you to talk to the Lord. If you have sin, confess it. But then let's talk to God. Cry out to him with your needs for him to be there. And then we will take together in just a couple moments. Our Father in God, you created all things and you made them good. You made us in your image and you placed us in a garden of bounty. But our father Adam turned from you, willfully disobeying, thus unleashing a torrent of evil and suffering throughout the world. And since that time, each of us have joined in his rebellion so that evil and suffering reverberate throughout the world, threatening to extinguish truth, beauty, and goodness. But you sent your Son into this broken world to reclaim it for you. And we confess that where we turn from you to go our own way, he followed hard after you, doing everything you commanded. Where we rebelled and did evil, he obeyed and did good. Where we made league with Satan, the enemy of all that is good, he overcame the devil, opening the door back into your presence. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring us into the presence of our Father, that we might be renewed. And bring us into the presence of Jesus our Lord, that we might feed upon him in faith. Receiving fresh forgiveness for our sins and the evil we have done. For in taking this bread, we confess we have sinned and done evil.
but that Jesus has obeyed working salvation for us and we look to him in faith. Take and eat. Holy Father, you created us to know you and to experience joy and blessing. But since the fall, we have experienced much suffering. And at times, Lord, we have felt abandoned, not only by others, but even by you. But Lord Jesus, we know that you alone were truly abandoned so that we might never be bereft of God's presence. Your blood was spilled to make and seal the new covenant. And it's great promise that our God will never leave or forsake us, but will walk with us through all the shadow-filled valleys of this life. Holy Spirit, presence of God with us, work through this sacrament so that we might experience anew the presence of God in the midst of our trials. We ask in the name of Jesus. Take and drink. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for all your great work for us. You are our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. Father, you created us by your word, and you formed and fashioned us by your spirit. You chose us to be your people from before the foundation of the world. And you redeemed us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you dwell in us by your Holy Spirit as we walk through this broken world that reverberates with the evil and suffering unleashed by our first parents after the fall. Father, we pray you would be with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, for we are your people. And Lord, we ask that you would form and fashion us to be the instruments of your righteousness rather than of sin, so that your voice might reverberate through our words and your glory might shine through our deeds. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for your glory and for the good of the world you so love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together, and we will conclude with a word of benediction. And I encourage you to receive the blessing of God that Jesus has won for you, so that as you go forth this week, you will go in his presence. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, amen. Go in the peace of the Lord. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church. If you would like to support this ministry, please go to www.brcc.church and click the Give tab.